Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free uh, from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will, ne- I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. This is uh, the word of the Lord. So uh, we started this series back in April of uh, last year. Uh, we're something just a little shy of 40 messages in. And today we cross over into the 13th and the, and the final chapter. And what I want to lay before us is as we go to this final chapter, there's a specific way that this book lands that we need to understand in in the rhythm of the book. So uh, this letter was written by a real person to a real group of people. And in the 12 chapters before, what happened and what was written to these people is 12 chapters of theological truth about Christ and what he has done. The reason for the 12 chapters, I hope, is clear after all of this time. The original audience found themselves in a time that it was was pretty difficult to follow Jesus culturally. There's suffering, there's tension from it, and over time, the weight of the constant grind against culture had worn them down to where they were asking, would I be better off leaving Jesus behind, going towards the old covenants, and just, would life be easier without Jesus? Is he worth it? The author then laid down those 12 chapters, a rock-solid case that Jesus is better in every way. And he kind of throws out the gauntlet in their language to show Christ's superiority. He's the better way, priest, sacrifice, hope, promise, inheritance, savior, mountain that we saw uh, lately. Literally, there's nothing better than Christ that you will find ever anywhere Christ is superior to all things. So 12 chapters of that, and then the letter makes that little bit of a turn into a question that we saw as well. What will you decide in light of who Jesus is? Over and over and over, he's the better all of these things. What will you decide in relation to that? Which mountain will you follow? Will you try and represent yourself before the mountain of God on your own? Or will you have Christ stand in your place with his righteousness? So we dealt with that question for the last two weeks But this 13th chapter leaves us now with the, but now what question? Where do we go from here after we kind of make our decision of which way will we go? What do we do with that information? What do we do with our choice? If we've decided to double down on following Christ or following him, what are the implications and the application that we need to understand of how to do that if we are followers of Christ still in maybe a, a tense situation or a hard culture. So notice with me, the book has not been filled with a thousand commands, right? There's been a couple things here and there, but a lot of people will relate Christianity to a lot of rules and do's and don'ts, but the, this, this book doesn't really unfold that way. We get 12 chapters of Jesus and then one chapter of application. So the book majors on what Christ has done. That would be what the Bible calls the indicative, uh, what he has accomplished, and what you've seen, once you've seen clearly what Jesus has done, then it's going to move towards the imperative. Okay, what does this mean to you? 
What are the commands? How do you live in light of what Christ has done? And in context, we heard, again, 12 chapters of Jesus, his resume, his faithfulness, his work, his fulfillment. And now in this 13th chapter, we get one of what our work is. What do we need to focus on? This is not weighted on all your works, but to see Jesus clearly will turn into some things that you need to do to live in light of that. So it'll be a little bit of a, a how-to guide, a little bit of a field manual. They're, they're not going to try and cover every single command and everything that you need to do and everything that you need to obey, but they are going to cover some major essential ones, especially in light of the scenario that they were in that's quite similar to the scenario that we're in. And I want to be careful to not overplay my hand and paint a picture that's not accurate. Uh, Yes, I'm trying to show you that this book isn't all commands, but by doing that, I'm not trying to pretend that the commands of God aren't important. Jesus himself said clearly, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. To say, hey, I've chosen Mount Zion, I've chosen to follow Jesus, I've chosen to have him uh, be the one who, who, who uh, stands in front of me and, and gives me his righteousness, but to say that I do not want to obey him or follow him or do what he says doesn't actually work. And Jesus said it this way as well, my sheep, my followers, they hear my voice and they follow it. Obedience is an important part of following Jesus. It's not a popular thing in culture, and even sometimes in our hearts we hit these points where I don't know if if I like that, but love and obedience are intrinsically tied. To follow Jesus, you have to obey Jesus. To obey Jesus, we need to know what he said. That's kind of what the 13th chapter does for us. So as we jump into these implications or the application of this text in the commands of how to live, in this first section, what the teacher is going to do is show us this. Hey, I need you to pay attention to, and I need to teach you what to point your love at. If you're going to faithfully follow Jesus, I need to help you with where to direct your love. And the implication of that is pretty clear. There are things that you are meant to love if you follow Christ. And there are things that you are meant to stop loving and stay away from if you're following Christ. That may sound simple on the surface and easy to understand, but it's not really actually easy all the time to walk out. Add chaos to the picture, cultural pressure, suffering into the mix. Uh, the, the original audience and us, maybe we feel pain or tension and anxiety or stress in our lives. And when we feel some sort of stress in our lives and we reverse engineer our actions at that point, what we may understand is what we love sometimes goes sideways when we're stressed out. As tension ratchets up, we have a real propensity to pause altogether loving the things that we were meant to. Interestingly enough, these are the things that are meant to bring us joy and peace. And then we may start loving the things that we shouldn't, the things that are sinful, flat out wrong, and also the things that actually steal our ultimate peace and joy. So the message from the author on this front side of the application and the implications is going to be this. Be careful, friends, about what you point your love at. Are you mindful of it? Do you think about it? Do you try and control what you love and what you pointed at? And do you sharpen some loves and dull other loves? Or or, or do you not spend much time thinking about it? Be mindful of it at all times, especially when things feel heavy and hard. But it's not just stress that can cause our love to go wrongly or sideways. Remember, the original audience lived in a day that was what we'll call unchristian or anti-Christian. Right? The culture wasn't following Jesus. They weren't fond of the idea of Jesus. And when a culture is anti-Christian or unchristian, that's not a, a benign saying as if they're like, well, we're just not that into it. To be anti-Christian is to simultaneously reject the ways of Christ. Maybe not all of them or all of them at the exact same time, but when a culture rejects him, they also reject what he says. 
So the author wants to show them what we'll need to hear as well. In an unchristian culture, the actual culture is going to try and steer your love. This is why you need to be mindful of what you're loving and what you're not. The culture will have a hand in trying to to craft and form and alter what you love and what you don't love. They'll try and uh, make you stay away from the things that you're pointed to love, and they'll try and move you towards the things that you're meant to stay away from. Eyes need to be opened about this. You can look around at the cultural movements and probably see that this is obvious, right? There are things that they're telling you to accept and love and do, but the Lord says, no, you can't do that. Now, our our culture has championed this idea that love in all forms is a good thing. And we hear this everywhere, right? Like, love is good, and and love is love, and all of these things. The idea is that love in any form is a good thing. Love pointed at anything, anyone, any ideal is absolutely fine. And if you press against that in amongst culture, what tends to happen now is they'll begin to mock you, saying, well, isn't your God the God of love? And if your God is the God of love, how can he be against any form of love? Isn't that some weird form of, of self-rejection? And they'll, they'll think they've got you in a, in a weird gotcha moment, but that goes against everything in the Bible, and it even goes against reality if you think about it. Love is a wonderful thing. It doesn't exist outside of the person of God. And therefore, we know without God the Father, we can't experience love. But the Bible is clear. There are things that you can make the object of your love that most certainly are sinful and wrong. Whether it should be like a romantic love that you have for something, an intimate love, the Bible says, hey, you can't do that. Or there's other loves as well when you accept things and you love things too much and they become an idol. There are forms in the Bible that says, hey, you can't do that. That's That's a wrong love. That's a love gone sideways. I said some forms of love and accepting all of them goes against reality as well. What does that mean? Well, It can be said the love of certain things starts wars in some cases. Is that a good love? Uh, The the love of a crazy man can be really what sends him out into lashing out in revenge. Is that that a good love? Because all love is good, right? And love is also what, what, interestingly enough, really sick people in the head cause them to to say, well, that's why I pursued a child, because I love them. We reject that. See, love of self is what makes a person selfish, Love of stuff is what makes a person greedy. Love of power makes a person a monster. Love of safety can make a person paranoid. It's not hard to see that love can go sideways when poured out upon the wrong thing. When our culture says love is love and accept all love, they're really just saying, let me do what I want. We can't do that if we're going to follow Jesus. This is a large point of James chapter 4 of love gone wrong, causing all kinds of, of calamity and strife among people. It's going, hey, why, why does all the crazy stuff happen around you? It's because you love the wrong things and your love is too strong for the long, wrong things. Then Paul kicked off Romans, the book that we covered last year, by saying that an over-love, an over-formed love of creation is what turns people inside out in their living, in their thinking, and in their actions. It says when you love the wrong thing too much and for too long, it literally twists the way that you think and it turns you inside out. The message, again, is clear. Be careful about what you love. Be careful about what you love and how strongly your love is at certain things and and, and make sure that you're pointing at the things that you're meant to. If we zoom out a moment, the author at the end of the text last week said, God has brought his children into the unshakable kingdom into an inheritance that can't be taken or challenged. It won't, it won't be stolen no matter what. It will not be broken down. It will not be lost. You cannot uh, somehow have it repoed from you. God has secured not just your eternal reality in Jesus, but he's also made a way 
for us to live as new creations now, where we worship in awe and reverence of God. Hey, I've given you this gift that will never be taken, and it's the ultimate thing that you needed more than anything, and you get to worship in awe. Well, what does that reality look like? Because you can hear things like, well, worship in awe and reverence, and then go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what that means. Well, he's going to try and tell you that. How do you worship and live in awe and reverence of God the Father who's given you the unshakable kingdom? The very first thing it says is let brotherly love continue. Remember, these are the closing words to the original audience. This is the landing of the plane. Jesus kind of landed the plane a little bit with his disciples saying something very similar in John 15. As he's getting ready to be arrested before he goes to the cross, he leaves a clear command with the disciples. John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is the thing that I want to leave you with. This is the thing that I want to be central on your mind, love one another. That command's all over the Bible, and it shouldn't be a surprise, but Jesus knew when the coming strain of the disciples seeing him crucified would come about, when the, when the commotion started and they begin to wonder, is any of this true? Was he really the Savior? I mean, everything's kind of breaking down. I don't see him right now. He knew when this external pressure came that they could easily start taking their eyes off of loving one another. They could easily begin to think, well, you know what? I understand that loving each other was important, and he says we should value that, but you're not taking into consideration that things are crazy and they're stressful and they're hard right now. I'll make more room to love other people well when things settle down. All of a sudden, we can really quickly believe that, that Jesus wants love to be like a seasonal trait. You do it when you have margin to do so. This is the exact thing that the enemy would want from you. It steals your joy. This is what the author wants to leave on our minds. Even if the original audience had affirmed their faith in Christ, and yes, we're in, we're, we're, we're Mount Zion all the way, and he's the, he's the better sacrifice, and he's the better priest. Even if they did all of that, it doesn't mean that their circumstances are, are magically going to clear up. They're not going to be like, hey, we're in, and then every, everything in the world gets easy for them. They still have cultural implications and stress and suffering and strife, and they're going to need to be reminded as they go back into this world that is against their faith, that they still need to pursue loving each other well. They couldn't wait for life to get easier for it. Why? Because Christianity is the family of God, the, the church that is characterized by the love of God. Francis Schaeffer said this, and I thought it was fitting. Through centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they're Christians. They've worn marks on their lapels of the coats. They've hung chains around their necks, even had special haircuts. I like that one. But there's a much better sign. It's a universal mark that is to last through all ages of the church until Jesus comes back. That mark is love among Christians. You don't have to wear something interesting is what Schaefer is saying. You don't have to change some outfit. We don't get some uniform necklace in order to show. The people should be able to see clearly who we are by the way that we love. And these were Jesus' words that Schaefer is ripping off. Jesus said, by this all people should know that you're my disciples. They should think you're weird for the way that you love. If you love one another, love is the defining mark. It is the birthmark left by new birth. If you are in Christ, if you're following him, you will love those around you. This means, again, if you're saying, hey, I'm following Jesus, I'm team Jesus, but you're not loving one another, as in the brothers and sisters in the church, there's, there's something wrong with that. Again, the call to love our brothers is a call to do it now. Not when things feel easier. 
what we begin to understand is the love that we have in between each other and the way that we have a community, it, it, it's not the thing that we take up when the storm is gone. It's the thing that helps us see Jesus through the storm. And our love for one another is the outflowing of our relationship with God. And we should make sure to understand this. In this verse 1, the very front side, it's talking about brotherly love amongst the body. This is specific. This is not talking about some low-level love that we, you know, I love everyone just like I love ice cream, this general niceness for every human. This is a reminder for the love inside the church and the body and the community. The idea is the beautiful love of God is, is already here in you. And it's a love different than outside in the world. Don't let that love kind of fall aside. Keep stoking the flame of that love. It's a gift you've been given. Don't stop experiencing it. And don't stop showing the world that love. So the front side is how we love each other, right? Then verse 2 and 3 adds an element to this brotherly love. The love in the family of God gets added, this other thing. Okay, and, and show love to strangers through hospitality. And show love to prisoners and those who are mistreated as well. Catch the thread that it's weaving. Keep stoking the love of God inside the body. And then take the embers of that fire and show it to the world outside. The first way it says to do this is just through hospitality. It's not a really difficult one. It's just through opening your home. Showing love to strangers through hospitality. Hospitality gets a little bit confused in our world and in our culture as if it's just entertainment and throwing like Pinterest style parties. But hospitality isn't just sweet dinner parties. It's not just fun uh, events. Hospitality is when you focus on the need of someone else inside your home. I know you're hurting or you have this thing or you have this issue. Here, here come in. I'm not going to cast you off. I'm, I'm going to invite you in in the middle of your difficulty. It's a focus of let me help you over let me just have a good time or host a cool gathering. And it presses a question into you and I, is your home open to those who aren't just your best friends? Is it a place that you'll invite people and care for them to meet their needs? Again, it's not telling you to open your home to anyone and everyone and all the time and anyone who's ever got a problem anywhere, like, I guess I better invite them over. But is your home a place that you will invite people into to care for them? Now, again, it's not that you can't still show hospitality and have a good time. You can meet a need and have a good spread at the same time. But we can think that hospitality is just this social thing. I invite a person over, you know, maybe later, you know, I cook them steak, so they're going to cook me something, they better cook me something good next time. It, it, it's not just that. It's an other, po- other person-focused thing. Hey, come in. I, I know that you're busted up right now. Here, come here. Let me show you the love of Christ. Let me be the hands and feet of Jesus to show you Jesus in the middle of your hurt. It's an outward focus. It's about meeting someone else's needs instead of just having yours met. The part about entertaining angels, I bet some of you want me to go into, and I'm just not. If you want to this week, go read Genesis 18. It's a very specific story of meeting a need, and all of a sudden, oh, it was an angel that I met the need. There you go. You can read it deeper, though. Don't neglect hospitality. And remember those who are in prison or mistreated. There's some dual meanings here. Some of their brothers and sisters would have been literally thrown in prison for their faith in Christ. But this isn't just about the, the people who are in prison. It's, it's a reality that the, the people who are hurting, 
It's easy to get so wrapped up in your life and your problems and your hobbies and your closest friends and and your schedule and your stuff to where you kind of get tunnel vision and you can't just see anything else. I'm just hyper-focused on getting done what I need to get done. You don't see the other people around you. That's why the call to hospitality and the prisoner and the mistreated is here. It shows us, um, it's to show us the love of Christ that we have been given freely by grace, that we have stoked into the fan when we're amongst the body and brings us joy, something that we share with other people even when they're hurting. See, the, the prisoner or the mistreated are people in great need. Those who are in the dumps in a terrible situation, heartache, tragedy, it just... The people who are hurting, we can't, if we're careful, lose sight of those people and neglect them when they hurt. Why? Because the grief isn't just something that I want to deal with right now. I'm busy. I've got stuff. I've got my own stuff. Like, that person is just hard to deal with. I, I just, I, it's easy to just look the other way when people are hurting. Sometimes out of selfishness, sometimes out of tunnel vision. But the call is, is pretty simple here. Don't neglect the hurting. Now, I have great issue that many people like to blame the church for every issue that you see in the world. And you'll see that by these like snive comments that they'll make, well, what's the church doing about this? Literally anything on the news, and I just envision them like sitting in an armchair going like the church could have fixed that, the church could have fixed that, and there's every problem is the church's fault. That, that's not what's going on here. This text isn't about ethereal organizations of a church and ethereal large-scale problems. What is it saying to you and I here? It's reminding you and I, if you are a child of God, loved and given grace, and you actually see a person, not on the news or somewhere out there, if you see a person hurting in your neighborhood, in your job, somewhere around there, and you can love them, do it. That's the call. It makes it a whole lot more simple when when you don't feel like you have to fix all the world's problem. You are a child of God, loved and given grace. Use that love in your circle of influence when you see people in need. The point of the Good Samaritan, right? Culture loves to cross to the other side when it's not convenient and people are hurting. Believers, Jesus asks you to move towards them when they're hurting. You're not the savior. You're not everyone's principal. You don't fix every issue when people in close proximity hurt. You just kind of, I hope they didn't see me. You kind of ask them how they are, maybe invite them into the home, see what you can do to press into and care for them. Again, this one isn't rocket science. It's not meant to be tricky. Your neighbor hurts, your coworker hurts, someone's lonely or, or has a difficult situation, reach out, invite them into your home, make them a good meal. When the world looks away, we're called to fight the temptation to do so. And then the hope is that when you do love people far off, you can be the hands and feet of Jesus, but also when they're curious of why in the world would you do this? You can share the love of Christ that you've been given. It's not your, you're not only doing it to do that, but that is a way that you can tie the gospel in. So some simple questions, as I said, that this is application and implication. The simple questions around this text can be this front side or this. Are you around brothers and sisters to remember to love them? We have that in our membership. If you remember filling out the membership online survey, part of it in there is like, are you around people enough to be known so that you can care for people? Then is your home an option to, to have a coworker or a neighbor or someone else in? Is it even an option for you or is your house so closed off? You're like, no, it ain't an option at all. 
Do people outside of your tight inner circle ever get to come in or come to your table? And here's the broader one. Would people who don't know Jesus notice the love that you show? Or they think that you're no different than anyone else? Again, the simple logic is the love that we've been given by Jesus should make itself out of us and be shown in the world, especially to the hurting. You don't have to fix everything. You can show Jesus in some things, though. Are you still with me? One. All right, cool. We're still going to finish no matter what. In verses 1 through 3, love was pointed at people. Now in 4 through 5, it gets pointed at holiness. The trajectory is going to change a little bit. First Peter 1 Peter 1.16 uh, says this, You shall be holy as I am holy. This is referencing the words of God. But to love holiness, we need to actually love certain things. And to reject certain things if we want to be holy. The first one may be one that you're surprised. If you're going, hey, in, in light of holiness and to be a holy people, what's the first thing you want to tell anyone that they should remember and hold in high regard? I doubt any of us would have said this. Hold in high regard marriage. Love it and hold it in high regard. When I was young, a ton of shows cast wives as the old ball and chain. They were portrayed as whiny, fun haters, complainers, the bane of the existence of the hardworking man. And now that's shifted. Now men and dads are portrayed as absolute morons and fools. They mess everything up. They spoil all the fun. They kind of stifle all creativity. And, and those are, are meant to be like funny shticks to, to kind of view a show in. Even though they're, they're supposed to be funny, what do they do? They paint a picture that, that marriage is actually a burden and that it's not good. And it's, gonna, it's just going to be terrible for you. It often shows this undercurrent of disdain. Then look broadly at our culture. When you look at the marriage age, and I, and I even tell people of how old I was when I was married, like, oh my gosh, you're a young pup. I'm like, I wasn't 13. What are you talking about? Like, the, the marriage age hasn't been pushed back just years, it's been pushed back decades. It's been pushed back that far. And what we learn is many people view marriage as a limiter of freedom. They view it as the thing that they'll settle down uh, and maybe do when they're done, like sowing their oats and having a good time. As if marriage is going to be the end of them finding who they are and having fun. As if you can't actually grow with someone else. And yet the Bible says that marriage is a beautiful union, an actual covenant that symbolizes the love of God with his people. Hey, when you look at the marriage of my people, it should be a shadow that you see my love for you. Marriage isn't a burden. It's not meaningless. What people love to say, marriage is not an archaic institution of man. Marriage is God's idea. It's where his love is made visible. It's also where the family is meant to take place, and it's where children are meant to be raised. There's a lot of people who love to kick against the goads and pretend that that's not true, and yet it is. It is true that in our broken world, things always don't work out in a perfect scenario, but the church should not be going along with conveying this idea that, that, that marriage can just be like, leave it or take it. It's not that big deal. It's, it's meaningless. These undercurrents that we hear from people that, that divorce is now a brave choice to find yourself. And we're like, oh yeah, and we slow clap. The church shouldn't do that. Marriage isn't meaningless. The church or the culture wants to, to pretend and sell you this idea that children do just as good in a broken home as in a faithful marriage. 
and we don't buy along with that either. Again, it can happen sometimes, but the church doesn't believe this. Why? Because this is the healthy or, or organism that God has, has, has orchestrated things to, to go in and actually show his love to the people around. Marriage is not just a contract that you come in and come out of when you want. Marriage is a big deal. Church is meant to fight to reject the idea that it's not. Again, it's surprising that this is what he leads out with. Do you want to understand how to love the right things and follow me? One of the first things i got to tell you is, is change the way that you see marriage or, or continue to, to, to have it highly elevated and make sure you don't tear down marriage in your speech or in your actions. And then he links it and also don't tear down marriage. And you do this by making sure that the marriage bed stays undefiled. There'll be those who love sexual desires and they're ruled by them. And that love will not only destroy a marriage, but it'll tear entire families apart. It'll lead people in all kinds of sexual immorality and adultery, which the text says God will judge. He's not going to overlook it. He's not going to decide it's not a big deal. It's going to head people straight into the judgment of God. Culture prioritizes the, the desires of the flesh so much that they become God. They become little gods for people, and they're defining realities that, that people pursue everything in light of these things, and they actually identify themselves in light of their pleasure and what they want. This has never actually happened in, in the realm of history, but is what's happened now. They put all of the pursuit of their joy and fulfillment into desire. And the author says, hey, don't do that. The culture tells you this is where you find freedom, this is bravery, this is the brand new world where all good things come, and the Bible says you better run from that because that's going to run you to the other mountain where you stand before God on your own in judgment. Be careful. Be careful not to let the desires of your heart run your life. Again, there's this thing that we believe, you know, like I'm, I'm team Jesus, but I'm going to do what I want with my desires. I'll go to church, I'll tithe, I'll set up stuff, but I'm, I'm going to desire the way that I want. You can't do that. You're fooling yourself to think that it doesn't walk you into the judgment of God. Then he shifts a little bit. It's not just an out-of-control love of sex and desire that can hurt a person. The author says a love of money can be just as dangerous. So the counsel is simple. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because if you're in Christ, your Savior will never leave you or forsake you. Your Redeemer has given you the ultimate inheritance that is unshakable and never be taken away. There is a good gift to be content. We need to understand the love of money isn't just a thing that rich people have, though, right? If you ever watch the, uh, the, the DuckTales and you think Scrooge McDuck, who's like diving into his coins, like, that guy loves his money. Yes, and so do poor people. You don't have to be rich to love your money. You just have to love it. Set it as your, the thing that your gaze is primarily on. A lot of people hide their love of money behind good stewardship and preparing things for the family. It's going to be careful about when you do that. Be careful about this desire, this view, the, the, this love of money that begins to insulate you from all things and ends up being your God. Here's the reveal. Those who aren't following Christ often follow chaos. There's only two paths. The chaos of an overlove of desire and an overlove of money. The author says simply just guard your heart against those at all times. Don't let yourself get consumed by things that aren't ultimate. Don't give your heart to things that won't last. Again, back to the unshakable kingdom. Ultimately, those things will let you down and walk you into judgment. The pull of money and sex are strong. So strong that many believe in their hearts that without those things, 
that life isn't going to be meaningful and, and worthwhile. Have you ever have something threatened and then all of a sudden you just kind of shrink in and you're like, oh no, life isn't going to be good anymore? This is what the world does with money and desire. It's going, hey, be careful not to do that with those things. There can be this fear, if I, if I lose this, then, then what good is life? And what joy do I have? And what fun is things? And the text is saying, hey, follower of Christ, understand that you have the Lord Jesus. He's your Savior. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And he'll help you not fear needing certain things in order to have a good life. He'll help you not set your gaze in such a way that, th- that life will be meaningless if a certain thing is taken away from you. This is why the author leads us towards the, the idea and the gift of contentment. Simple diagnostic on the backside. There's simply how do you talk about marriage? I know that we're not all married, but how do you talk about marriage? And if you are married, do the people around you think that you enjoy your marriage? Or do you talk like everyone else? Do you talk in weird ways that just loves to kind of bash people and trash people and, and make your spouse kind of seem like a fool when, when they're not around? How, how, how do people view your marriage in light of the way that you act and what you do, or maybe even just the way that you spend your time? Does your time show that you view your marriage? And has the gospel changed or challenged the way that you handle money? It should. And the deeper, simple question, but maybe at a deeper root level, how are you doing with contentness right now? Like right now, for, for me, if I'm honest, there's seasons where like, I'm doing great, having a hard time. I'm doing great, I'm having a hard time. How, how is contentment right now for you? As the desire of money or stuff or experiences begin to threaten some of your contentment and you need a fresh picture from the Holy Spirit that you have everything that you need already doesn't mean that things won't be sad or hard, but you need the Spirit of God to show you again that you have the gift that's better than anything else. The 30,000-foot view is the Savior who is the love of God made manifest is given the greatest love you will ever find. He's called you to live in that forever, and then you get to live in that amongst other believers, caring for each other. Caring for each other, discipling each other, taking a vested interest in their growth and their maturity and their well-being, walking out your days in the love of the Father with the love of your brothers and sisters. And then we pour out that love and hospitality and care when we see blatant needs and right in front of us instead of turning the other way. We turn away from the world's obsession with sex and money. Why? Because we're content with what we have doesn't mean you can't have goals. It, can't, it doesn't mean that you can't try and uh, build a retirement, but there's a contentment that, that doesn't always go, man, if I don't have this, life isn't going to be good that the Lord wants to give you. Because of this, if we narrow it down, following Jesus on these front verses looks like love, holiness, and contentment. Love the brothers and sisters of God. Love the broken when they show themselves in front of you. And keep yourself out of the things that the love are running at, or the world are running at to love so loudly. Even in the middle of the chaotic seasons, this is possible. And Jesus told us, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to walk with you to help you with this. It's a gift that the Spirit gives is contentment in the middle of really hard seasons. Band, you guys can come back up. We're going to take communion. I, I, I said clearly this is a heavy application text. But in light of even application texts or implication texts, we still know 
that it is only by the work of the Savior that we have any of this. So we kind of come to the table once again to clear eyes to see what we're loving and how we're living, but understanding that it is the broken body and blood of Jesus that has brought us in. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, I think a good posture for us would be some moments of reflection And for some of you where you see that the Lord has begun to change your love and change your desires and help you rewire loves into the right way, there's a lot of gratitude to be had there. Father, you've spoken into my money. You've you've helped with some of my my, my things of fear to show me contentment in you. And there's also some moments that maybe we ask the Spirit, hey, may we help me? I I think there are some things that, man, I love them a little bit too much. I'm not really sure what to do about that or how to alter that or how to even think about that. If you sense some of those, maybe say, Holy Spirit, we we come and you, you show me Jesus clearly. We show me what it looks like to to live outside of fear and in a contentment of what you have given. And then you come to the table. Whether you're doing great in that or you're having a little bit of struggle, you can come and see that the body and blood of Jesus is still there for you and be built up by that. Friends, I pray that texts of application and implication wouldn't be burdensome to us. They would see that the author is trying to help us walk us into freedom and walk us out of fear by showing how we are meant to live. I pray that we'll see that and the Spirit will speak into that. Will you stand with me?